Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. McCola helping you take control of your health. And today we are uh, about to embark on a journey for a new book on COVID-19. The courage, I believe it's a courage to face COVID-19. Is that right, John? Yes, sir. The Courage to Face COVID-19, subtitle, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. Perfect. So that you just heard from John Leake, who is one of the co-authors, who you probably haven't heard of before, but you had heard, have heard of the other co-author, which is Peter McCullough, one of the true leaders in the fight to battle the, the narrative that the global tyranny has put together to essentially enslave us. And um, yeah, it was interesting because John has recently picked up this interest and wanted to write something. And little to his knowledge, it turns out Dr. McCullough is his like neighbor, literally a few minutes away from his house. So they're essentially almost neighbors and they collaborated and wrote this book earlier this year. So you're in for a real treat. Uh, why? Because I've read the book and it's good. John is, a, 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 as he'll explain shortly, has, is a really good writer. And he wrote, I've read a lot of books about COVID-19, but most, most of them tend to be detailed and, and specifics. And, you know, it's just difficult to continue to engage your interest. But, but John is, uh, writes, not, not, I think, Non, it's nonfiction novels, I think is what way he describes it. And um, because of that, he, he creates this story thread throughout the whole thing, which engages you and really, it's just so much easier to digest that information through the story structure. And so I, I really appreciated the ease of which was to read. And I think you would love it too. So uh, welcome, John and Peter. Appreciate you, you joining us today. Thank you for having us, Dr. McCollum. That's a pleasure. Yeah, so Peter, maybe it might be nice to just get a catch up before we dive into the book, uh, where you're at with your status, because you've been really targeted by a wide variety of agencies, including your, I think they, from what I understand, your license still holds, but the, uh, 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 the Board of Internal Medicine is going after your accreditation, as is Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick. Yeah, so I, let me say, I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist in Dallas, Texas. I'm in practice now. I always have been. And I've been battling diseases. I shouldn't be battling the biopharmaceutical complex. But in our book, uh, Courage to Face COVID-19, it's really not a COVID book. It's a book about a crime. And it's a book about uh, what's happened to patients, doctors, others in our circle. And in the chapter in the book, Dr. McCullough, the, the, the name of the chapter is called The Stripping. Mm -hmm. I have been stripped of virtually everything in my career because I've tried to help patients. And most of the stripping occurred even before the vaccines came about. Mm -hmm. 
This is yeah. astonishing. I'm the most published person in my field in the world in history. I have over 650 citations in the National Library of Medicine, over 1,000 overall publications on the interface between heart and kidney disease. I've lectured at the New York Academy of Sciences, the FDA, the European Medicine Agencies. I'm in the upper echelon of academic physicians in the world, but because I innovated, I got investigation in new drug applications, I got large grants, I devised ways of treating patients, I worked with others, I demonstrated that it works, I testified in the US Senate, helped the White House the best I could when they reached out to me. Because of that, I was stripped of my job as an academic physician. Fortunately, I changed practices and kept my practice going. And then I've been stripped of two uh, major editorships, two professorships. I've been stripped of every NIH committee, every industry clinical trial committee. And the unique things about the stripping is there's no courtesy call. There's no due process. Anything contractually that indicates due process is completely violated. No faculty senate, no explanation. So when it happens, there's not even an explanation. It's simply you're stripped of this activity that you've done in some cases for decades. And, and most importantly, there's no due process, which is just shocking, as you, you know, mentioned. I, I, I compare this from a historic perspective um, to the counter-reformation in Europe, um, the holy office of the Inquisition. Um, if, if the holy office of the Inquisition deemed you guilty or, or under suspicion for heresy, um, you simply received notice from the holy office, a sort of subpoena, or you were simply arrested. And there wasn't due process. I mean, there were these trials by torture and, um, you know, you would be examined by a, a kangaroo court. And if you were found guilty of heresy, um, you could be exiled. You could even be burned at the stake. And I mean, that's obviously a very exaggerated form of this. But I, I see a reversion back to a, a kind of pre-scientific revolution era of orthodoxy being imposed. And if you, in this case, by federal agencies in Washington, as we discussed in our book, none of these people had any experience treating COVID-19. I mean, they'd never listened to the lungs of someone with um, pulmonary involvement from COVID-19. They, they, they'd never had any contact with, with COVID-19 patients. And yet they were handing this orthodoxy down from on high. And if a doctor like Dr. McCullough questioned this, then he would be stripped of his professorships and, and, and ranking position at an academic medical institution. Yeah, and what year did that occur? If you could remind us. The, the very first sets of... No, 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 I, I know what yours is, but I'm the, the counter-reformation that John was referring to. Oh, well, it was, it was after Martin Luther, you know, posted his, his thesis in which he, he challenged um, what was going on in the church. I mean, I think the height of the Counter-Reformation was the, the early 17th century. Yeah, um, six, okay, so 1650 or something. I'm, okay, so I mean, there, 600 there, years ago almost. There, there are two really notable cases of, of guys who the Holy Office really came after them. There's Giordano Bruno, 
um, who was burned on the Campo dei Fiori in, in, in Rome. And by the way, there's a monument to him now. So he was vindicated. I believe <laughs> he, 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 was, he was burned at the stake, I believe. And I want to say, don't quote me on this, but I want to say 1517. And then there was Galileo Galilei, who, who um, about a century later, um, it was placed under house arrest for the last 11 years of their lives. And both of them, you know, for, for writing about and, and talking about the Copernican, um, you know, model of, of the cosmos where um, the, the earth and the other planets are going around the sun. Um, as distinct from the the Ptolemaic, which was the, the earth is the center of things. Well, these guys were just scholars following uh, the truth of their observations. And Galileo, I think he was vindicated 400 years later. I think Pope John Paul II came out and said, well, we're kind of sorry about what we did to Galileo. So I'm hoping that Dr. McCullough's vindication will not be 400 years from now. No. But perhaps, perhaps, you know, coming, coming soon. Yeah, I, I'm quite confident of that because there's more, uh, it's a significantly large percentage of the population is starting to wake up. And I think that is most clearly exemplified by the number of parents who have chosen to back or jab their six month old to five year old ch child. I mean, it's, I think it's low single digits across the whole country. So that is encouraging news. People are starting to wake up. So, um, so Peter, why don't you, uh, I guess, expand on what we were, we were just discussing with respect to where, where they're at with uh, the American boards uh, before John so, so clearly gave a, a marvelous analogy of what happened in the 1600s to what's it, happening it's, today. It's true. It's just, you know, fortunately, uh, you know, I'm not in the gallows uh, somewhere, uh, you know, <laughs> physically, uh, you know, chained to a, you know, to a stake. But, um, you know, I can tell you what's going on is a, is a form of cyber warfare, professional warfare. And, uh, you know, I received on May 26 a letter and it was simultaneously sent to almost every doctor who's spoken out and tried to help patients with COVID-19. Myself, Pierre Corey, Paul Merrick, uh, Denise Sibley, uh, people who've testified under oath on the pandemic response, we were hit. And I was notified of a professional review that I was actually in trouble. And I maintain my boards in both internal medicine and cardiology consistently now. I'm in my fourth decade of doing so. I have a perfect track record. And some of the board exams rely on my research that I've published. I can tell you, um, they are attacking uh, you know, one of the top people in medicine. And in the, in the attack, it says, you have made public statements that may... Um, lead to someone not taking a vaccine. That's actually what's stated in the letter. So they are, this is under the pretext that people should be taking vaccines, that there shouldn't be any fair balance or any discussion on risks and benefits. And they picked out five statements that I made under oath under in the Texas Senate. Now, let me tell you what, when you go and give Senate testimony, I've done twice in the US Senate, multiple state senates, you raise your hand and say, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And you're going to answer the questions to the best of one's ability, which is what I did. And now that I am now uh, in a process of professional reprisal for sworn statements under oath, 
This should be a warning to every nurse, every engineer, every uh, lawyer, everybody who now is trying to help America or being involved in some process where statements made under oath can lead to professional attack. So, you know, of course, I've done a response letter. I have evidence to cite every single statement made. Senator Johnson stepped up and he called out the American board and said, hey, listen, let's just meet about this. Let's have a roundtable discussion on the issues at hand. The American Board of Internal Medicine has stonewalled him. The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons has filed a lawsuit against ABIM uh, in this uh, uh, act of professional reprisal and damage. Now I'm, I'm a publicly damaged by the American Board of Internal Medicine. And as we sit here today, uh, American Board of Internal Medicine says they're gonna do a closed review. Uh, they will not let me attend my own meeting or even understand the discussions that take place. To my knowledge, not a single person on this credentialing committee is an expert on COVID-19. They don't have the expertise that I have on the problem at hand. So just from a logistical uh, issue that I'm wondering if you could comment on the fact that it appears to me that that certification, especially in the context of your new career, really doesn't mean much because, I mean, you can still practice medicine in your state. You're legally licensed, so it doesn't impair your ability to practice. It just, I would think it impairs your ability to participate in certain professional organizations or hospitals, but you're not doing that. So does it? Well, 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 no, to clarify, you know, I'm in practice. I uh, am in a large uh, private practice in Dallas, Texas. It has but they, they don't need your board certification. To no, they do. Listen, they I do. Have, I have to maintain uh, staff privileges wow. to be on call at the hospital. So I have to uh, maintain my staff privileges by uh, being continuously board certified. In order to participate with insurance companies, I have oh. to be board certified. So no, this clearly uh, has severe professional consequences to me. And I think everybody listening to this understand must understand that doctors are the most heavily vetted of any professional activity, and rightly so, because people's lives are in our hands. And we must maintain the most forward-facing, uh, 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 beyond reproach status with our boards, and I've been now permanently tarnished no matter what comes out of this review. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I hope it goes well because uh, you certainly don't deserve this, but uh, taking the brunt of the, uh, the discrediting campaign. So, um, John, maybe we can uh, circle back to how you started writing the book and, and uh, explore some of the way that you, your thought process on putting it together. Yes, sir. Um, well, I, I, as, as I mentioned, I come out of a true crime background. Um, I lived in Vienna, Austria for about 15 years. Um, I, uh, through my first book, got very interested in forensic medicine and actually spent quite a bit of time at the Vienna Institute of Forensic Medicine, where I did some translation work for a pathologist. And um, I was always haunted by this historic figure um, who has a strong connection with the Vienna Institute of Forensic Medicine, a guy named Professor Ignaz Semmelweis. Um, this is in the year uh, 1847, I believe. He makes this observation that student anatomy students who are performing dissections at the Vienna Institute 
are then going on to a maternity clinic and performing gynecological examinations of pregnant women. And he, he begins to postulate, well, I wonder if they wash their hands with chlorinated lime, if perhaps that could prevent what he suspected was the transfer of corruption from the cadavers to the pregnant women, which was in turn causing what they called childbed fever. I believe the, the medical clinical name for that is per, perperal fever. Peripheral, peripheral. And he thought, well, you know, it's just an observation, but let's, let's give it a shot. So he proposed that the anatomy students wash their hands with chlorinated lime. And quickly, the incidence of fever in this maternity clinic dropped down to less than 1%. I mean, it was a staggering mortality rate prior to this procedure. I think it was up to 18% at one point. Women didn't even want to be admitted to this clinic because the word spread that if you go there, you're going to die right after your child is born. So Professor Semmelweis makes this observation. He actually does some pretty solid documentary statistical analysis of what he's observing. And how do the medical eminences of Europe react at this time? They say, you're crazy. There's, there's no basis for making this for this postulation for, for any of your uh, of your conclusions. You're nuts. Um, and he loses his professorship and ultimately dies in, in an insane asylum. Um, so anyway, sorry for the long detour in history, but that always haunted me. The, the Semmelweis story. Um, he was later vindicated, as we know. It was a pioneering observation in the germ theory of medicine. Um, so he was vindicated, but not without suffering a massive penalty. I, I had this story in my head. I even thought about writing a screenplay about it. Fast forward, SARS-CoV-2 arrives, and I began to perceive that it's the same thing as the Semmelweis story. Our, 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 our uh, so-called purported authorities are imposing an orthodoxy, and anyone who questions the orthodoxy, like Dr. McCullough, is stripped. So that's the basic drama of the story. Um, pioneering doctors who had the courage to actually treat COVID to learn as fast as they could and as much as they could, and then to advocate for the treatment of COVID, like Professor Semmelweis in Vienna, um, were heavily persecuted. And so it's a true crime story um, based on this, this medical drama. I, it's, it's part true crime story, part medical thriller. Yeah, which is why it's such a good read. You did a magnificent job of compiling that. So kudos to you for that. Thanks. So, uh, Peter, would you like to um, give your perspective on putting that book together and how it was for you and what you perceive as some of the highlights are? Well, it's the first time I've been an author of a popular book. And I can tell you, I have deep respect for the whole authoring and publication process. It took a year it mm -hmm. took a year of, 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 of John uh, interviewed people. He flew to different locations, interviewed people. We brought people to Dallas. We wanted to hear firsthand 
uh, and not get it second and third hand what happened. It's an international story. Uh, it brings in Dr. Didier Rialt from France, the most celebrated microbiologist in history and, and his work in Marseille where he opened up a field hospitals. Certainly myself and what happened? Uh, how did I respond when my dad got COVID? Was I gonna follow the government narrative and let the virus slaughter my own father? I mean, these types of stories are gripping. Uh, we, we have some uh, in-hospital stories of what happened, people who gave firsthand account. John met them personally and interviewed them. And anybody who picks up this book who's been touched by this virus is going to be able to relate to this. It's very important. What's going on is a crime. It's a crime. It's maybe the crime of all time. And it's, it's such a complex reality that people for the first time are understanding our government and our agencies and even our hospitals, our health systems, and our doctors are not acting in our, base, uh, in our best interest. And that complex reality is so difficult to, to come to grips with. The only way to do it is to read a story, to, uh, to read a narrative and, and, and come to your own conclusion. So I, I was in really great story with your dad and how you got him through that. But I'm wondering, uh, since the book was written, how's your dad doing now? He's doing great. My dad's in, uh, uh, in senior living. Uh, he's never taken a vaccine. Uh, he's been the victim of lockdown after lockdown. You know, he's already had the <laughs> virus. Uh, we know now that if, if one's had the virus, you can get it a second time. But if it is, it's characteristically mild. Paper by Kima Telly and colleagues shows 97% protection against hospitalization and death if you've had prior COVID, which he did. Uh, but still, he's been forced to wear a mask, have meals in his room, be in solitary confinement. I'm telling you, for someone with cognitive impairment, this is not a good strategy. Right? This is no, this is absolute torture. My yeah. mom is in the same facility and my mom many times can't see my father. So the victimization occurs. And unfortunately, yes, we broke through and we got early treatment. Sadly, other people didn't. They were hospitalized or lost their lives. But the suffering through the pandemic response measures is immeasurable. Yeah, I want to get to John for in a moment about the, some of those stories, but I, I want to uh, have another question for you, uh, a scientific one as relates to the exposure, because that's really re-exposure of, of the COVID variants, like specifically the BA5 and the future ones to come. Uh, it's, it's my view and understanding, I just wanted you to comment on this, that when you get this exposure, if you're not jabbed and you're non no, essentially non-jab, that that's, that is the authentic real deal booster that will radically continue to improve your immune response to not only that infection, but future variants. That's exactly right. It turns out that we need an intact immune system that's unperturbed to be able to respond to the virus and its variants. And in two papers, one by uh, Aditi and the other one by Wheatley in 2021, the titles of the papers have the term immune imprinting. And what mm -hmm. that means is because of mass vaccination and vaccination that's narrow, directed uh, immune response against a extinct spike protein, the body's immune system every six months is redirected against the wrong target. So when an infection does happen, it basically hits somebody from the flank and creates more severe disease. And so that's the reason why we see the vaccinated having longer durations of illness, higher risks of hospitalizations and deaths than the unvaccinated. And unfortunately, it's a mild illness. It's far milder than it used to yeah. be. 
but it's, it's a disadvantage now to have taken one of the vaccines. So uh, another term for immune imprinting is original antigenic sin. And I'm wondering if those are the same physiological process that we were concerned about at the beginning of or prior to the, the jabs, which is uh, antibody dependent enhancement. Is that the same or are they different? I think they're separate terms. Antibiotic dependent enhancement suggested that the vaccines could backfire as it has with some other vaccines, dengue fever um, uh, and others. And, and what that means is that in fact, the vaccines make the syndrome uh, more virulent and more pathogenic and it's largely because of antibodies that bind to the, basically to the FC fragment of the receptor, the antibodies that are trying to field the virus. And we actually pull more virus into the system. There is a paper, a Chinese paper by, I believe the first author is Wang that actually you know, theoretically proposed that. If we saw that on a mass scale, we would be seeing large numbers of people vaccinated dying of acute COVID-19. We're not seeing that. I know people have said sooner or later it's going to happen. Thankfully, I think it's progressively more mild. But this idea that the immune system is being distracted and people are having longer illnesses, boy, you can't have two better examples than NIAID director Anthony Fauci and our President <laughs> Biden. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. All right, John, thank you for the indulgence and uh, addressing some of the science with Peter. Uh, so I would really be interested in you sharing some of the highlights of these hospital stories, because you do such a great job of, you know, providing the story and, and, the, and with that thread, exposing some of the fraud behind what's been going on. The thing that, that I found completely astonishing was on the one hand, you had our federal agencies um, with this statute the the CARES Act, which was signed into law, I believe, on March the 26, 2020. The CARES Act created all of this pandemic response money that was generated out of thin air by our, our, our government. I think overnight with the stroke of the keyboard, about a trillion dollars were created as pandemic response. And um, people who were admitted to hospital who even if they just had a positive PCR test, but were admitted for other symptoms, injuries or, or, or other illnesses, they, they were coded as, as COVID um, patients. And there was a, a, a host of financial incentives to hospitals for doing that. So that alone was rather disturbing. But what, what I found extremely disturbing was the hospitals received a 20% bonus, that is 20% of the entire hospital bill was paid to the hospital if the hospital used remdesivir to treat the patient. So a massive financial incentive, if the patient, and this was the guideline, if the patient required supplemental oxygen, or was deemed to require supplemental oxygen, the, pay, the, the hospital received a 20% bonus on the full hospital bill for administering remdesivir, which is an emergency use authorization product, a patented product um, that had grave safety concerns, particularly with respect to 
kidney and liver damage. Even the WHO concluded this is, should not be used on, on, on patients. Um, nevertheless, this perverse incentive remained for US hospitals to continue administering remdesivir. I spoke with many nurses who said it was like, you know, a well-conducted train schedule about day six or seven, the urine output started to diminish. There were clear signs of kidney damage from the administration of remdesivir. So that was extremely disturbing. The other thing was patients who read or their families who read the FLCCC protocol or the McCullough protocol, then started requesting things like ivermectin, um, even things that have been around forever. Um, extra strength aspirin. This was something that Dr. McCullough recommended in his protocol for hospitalized patients, 325 milligrams of aspirin to reduce um, uh, thrombosis. Even these things, were denied to the hospitalized patients. The families would beg, would plead, you know, please administer ivermectin. Nothing else is being offered. By the hospital's own admission, the patient is headed for the ventilator and is probably not going to die. And yet, the hospitals and their hired gun attorneys would fight tooth and nail, even in the face of a court order, to administer some of these McCullough protocol drugs, in some cases going to the extent of flouting a court order. A judge would say, you have to administer ivermectin, extra strength aspirin, whatever it is that the patients are asking for in the hearing. The patient's family would get a, a court order, but the hospitals would still refuse to administer it. So I, I heard numerous stories um, that in, in different jurisdictions, some in New York, some in Texas, in which nothing was offered to the patients on the, on the contrary, um, denied, denied, denied until the end. And the outcome was death for the patient. So I- there ever, Was there ever a consequence for ignoring the court order? Or they just- no, on, 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 on the contrary, I spoke with an attorney. She herself was a judge, a, a, um, a former judge in New York State named Beth Parlato. And she told me just horrifying stories of hospitals refusing to obey a court order issued by a judge and no consequences. None. Um, I mean, it was almost at a certain point, there was one particular hospital in, in the Buffalo area, the attorney of which realized these court orders, they have no teeth. We'll just, we, we will literally conduct ourselves in utter contempt of court and there will be no consequences. Even I mean, if, it, even it, if the result of ignoring the court order results in the, in the death, was death. So, so um, th there, there's, there's an element in this story that I, I think the American people need to awaken to. Um, you know, I'm down here in Mexico and people talk about Mexican corruption. If you get pulled over <laughs> by a cop, you might have to grease his palm. 
In the United States, our corruption, I think, is an entirely scale of magnitude, you know, multiple scales of magnitude higher. Namely, it's not that we disobey the law, we just change the law. This, <laughs> this, um, this, this rule by, by pharmaceutical industry lobbyists um, who have deployed like an army on Capitol Hill, um, we see it in the Cures Act of 2005 and in the CARES Act of 2016. There are all of these blanket immunity um, um, provisions that are included in these, in these massive emergency uh, statutes where um, should there be, by the judgment of federal health agencies, a pandemic, should a, an emerging infectious disease come to our shores, if the Department of Health and Human Services declares this an emergency, then two things happen. An immense amount of money is generated out of thin air and distributed to the biopharmaceutical complex. That's the first thing. The second thing is any medical professional who is the recipient of these funds is granted immunity for using these emergency use products. So, you know, great work if you can get it. You, you, you get filthy rich, rich receiving federal funds if an emergency is declared. And if the, the patient is injured, then you're fully, fully indemnified of immunity. So it's a massive organized complex that has resulted in what I think the reader can only conclude is, is crime. It's criminal conduct. It's reprehensible criminal conduct. It is. I, I think that particularly as we get into the second half of this, Dr. McCullough and I are working on a book now about these mandatory vaccine products. I, I, think, I think ultimately humanity will realize that particularly within the context of peacetime, it's not an occupying army in Poland. You know, the German army occupies Poland in the years, you know, 1939 to early 40s, where all kinds of just massive crime is committed within the context of a military occupation. This isn't the army. Mm -hmm. You know, this isn't rogue police units. Um, this is our elected officials that are committing a massive crime against the citizenry. Yeah. I think it will go down in history is is the, the the greatest the greatest crime against humanity that that has been documented that we've witnessed. I couldn't agree more uh, up to this point. <laughs> what we don't know is what what's coming in the future <laughs> it can make this look like small potatoes. Uh, I'm afraid uh, we're in a lull now. Uh, actually, let's get back to Peter. What, what, what is your take on the current state? Because as I mentioned, we're in a lull. I mean, most communities don't have lockdowns. They don't have mask requirements. And it doesn't appear that they're uh, progressing in the implementation of, of uh, COVID jabs to, for requirements. I mean, other than what they've already done. So what, what, what's your take on where we're at and what's going to happen in the near, near future? Uh, what I've observed is, I think, from a government public health agency, 
we have implicitly moved from a COVID zero aim where we would get to zero cases to a COVID inevitable situation where it's inevitable everyone's going to get it. And the question is when, you know, when the Spanish flu swept through the United States, uh, there wasn't any of, of these things that we talked about. And it took about two years. It basically exhausted itself. Um, it, it, the goals of so many things was to slow the spread. And I think probably the spread was slowed and we've actually prolonged the agony of this. Uh, COVID does appear to be inevitable. There may be a small fraction who are spared. You know, when I do large public programs now, thousands of people attend, uh, and I asked the question as I did last night, about 70 to 90% of people raise their hand and they say they've had it. Mm -hmm. uh, recently, on June 27th, 2022, in the Texas Senate, the Dean of the University of Texas School of Public Health in Houston uh, presented data from a large sample using a high-grade research assay for exposure to SARS-CoV-2. The conclusion is 99% seroprevalence. Everyone's, everyone's been exposed to this thing right now. Now it's just the issue of who's going to have essentially the manifestation of a common cold or a little bit worse. The hospitals are empty. I can tell you at this point in time, the emergency has been long gone. I think the emergency or any threat of overrunning the hospitals ended in January of 2021. Yet the administration has extended the emergency claim, there are still large employers that have not returned to the workplace. And so the absurdity is workers are not going into these empty offices, they're doing WebEx at home, and then they go out to crowded restaurants and bars at night uh, into the usual nightlife. The absurdity now extends on. What I predict what's going to happen is we will have multivalent COVID-19 vaccines in the fall, and then we're going to see a change in the messaging. The messaging is going to be, and Deborah Burks, by the way, former uh, COVID task force member, has already come out and said, listen, oh, we knew the original vaccines weren't going to work. The, the new messaging is going to be, listen, the first generation vaccines weren't so good, but now the new ones are so much better. Everybody has to take it. And the reason why everybody has to take it with these new improved vaccines, without any proof, without any clinical trials, the claim will be made, you have to take the vaccines to prevent COVID from coming back. Watch out for that. So it, it's been uh, speculated that the emergency use authorization will be extended until the, the uh, midterm elections in November. So still a few months away. Uh, so these, these new vaccines, of course, could be released under that authorization. But at some point, there is no emergency. So that it's going to, it's, I guess they could continue to do it. I mean, it's just one of the additional crimes they're continuing to, to commit. But it's, it's. I think I, I think this is analogous to a mafia protection racket. I mean, we have a new product, and in order to retain your job or to go to school or to accept your scholarship benefit at a university or your job as a, as a pilot for an airline or whatever it may be, you have to receive this injection, and our friends in government have assumed responsibility for the research and development money. They pre-purchased the product. They've indemnified us of liability. So you have to get it, courtesy of the US government paying for it. And if, you're, if you get injured, then we're indemnified of liability. 
I don't see this as any different from a mafia protection racket. I mean, no one would buy a new product under those terms unless they're being forced to. I mean, Dr. McCullough was talking about it earlier, a new car with a new state the, 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 the disc brakes are made out of ceramic or something. It's a new experimental material. And they, you know, you pull it off the parking lot. It's really fast. It's really sexy. Um, you know, you get a, a date, you know, the, straight off, off the parking lot, but then the brakes fail and you crash and burn. Well, this would only have to happen a couple of times before there's a product recall. <laughs> And you can bet that the manufacturer is going to be held liable for his product. We, we are now in, in this new kind of twilight zone. I mean, I sometimes think Rod Serling, you know, could, could, could narrate this, where suddenly all of the rules, um, you know, have been turned on their head. So what your, what's your projection for what's coming next? I mean, I mean it, it, it is just hard to imagine that they've been able to get away with as much as they did, but they've done it. It's the residents of local, the facts speak for themselves, the, 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 the reprehensible actions that they've committed in the crimes are just shocking and the people they've killed. So what, what's, your, what's your best guess from your analysis and diving deep in this and obviously taking a, a sincere interest in it? Well, I, th I think things of this scale are very characteristic. We were talking about this earlier of, of um, massive propaganda, uh, massive what I would call a psyop. Mm -hmm. um, and and we, we know from history that when a, a, a population is, is absolutely bombarded with, with propaganda, you know, something like an organized psychological operation is being performed on the public. Um, it is very, very difficult for the citizenry to um, work through this and to hold um, our, our leadership accountable. We know from the financial crisis in 2008, well, we know from in the invasion of Iraq under false pretenses in 2003, you know, we know there wasn't really any accountability. What seems to happen is, there will be a certain critical mass of, of growing awareness of what happened, but then we lurch to the next emergency. And the public's um, attention is then distracted. I mean, I, I remember when this attorney, Beth Parlato, who has been a COVID uh, you know, treatment advocate, she said, um, you know, it was, I guess, in spring of this year, she said, you know, my phone has kind of quit ringing. I sort of feel like my practice is a, this, this seems to be winding down. I remember telling her in the phone call, well, you know, you just wait, um, right as this crisis winds down, you can almost be damn sure that there's going to be another crisis that um, uh, directs our attention somewhere else, probably abroad. And I think two days later, um, Russia invaded Ukraine, and um, there wasn't really any any serious effort to diffuse that crisis between Russia and Ukraine. 
that had been fomenting and, and, and growing tensions for many, many years, going back to 2014. So it seems that we, the American people, are constantly having our attention directed from the next, you know, from one crisis to the next. I mean, Peter has talked about this with monkeypox. It's kind of like, you know, suddenly we have monkeypox um, is is emerging. Um, so I, I'm I'm kind of pessimistic. I'm sorry, that was a long way, long-winded way of saying I'm I'm not particularly hopeful. We hope that people will read our book. Um, in the in its narrative form, I think it will enable people to understand what has happened for the last two and a half years. And, and you know, we hope that with, with growing awareness, maybe there can be a reckoning. Okay, Peter, pretty much a similar question, but more from a medical perspective. Uh, obviously, things are going to be changing. We've got the monkeypox uh, initiative, essentially, where uh, Tedros has declared a worldwide pandemic response or emergency, I guess. Uh, and then Biden followed within the next week, which was, I think, I think last week. Uh, but it's difficult to perceive that to escalating what it did with SARS-CoV-2. But certainly the variant issue that you alluded to earlier and the new, new vaccines that are coming out. So I'm wondering if you could sort of paint a picture for us and give us your best recommendation on how to prepare ourselves for the, for the immediate future, you know, this, this fall, winter, and what, to, what we should expect and what's the best action. Obviously, it would, it would I mean, I'm sure there's the, the most, the strongest recommendation is just don't get any jab because these things are untested and they're, they're nuts. They're the furthest thing from safe that it could be. Well, let's take the, the viral infection first. I anticipate there will be more variants. They'll progressively become more mild, like the common cold, indistinguishable from the common cold. What I've learned here is that uh, there's very little need for prescription drugs. We can use virucidal nasal washes, a variety of things work to reduce viral load in the nose and the throat, and then nutraceuticals and supplements, and we're good there. So I think the, the virus itself will be so easily managed, uh, I don't see a compelling reason to do testing. And I think mm -hmm. just, uh, you, you know, the, the government actually sent every household a bunch of tests, I think, to kind of gin up the numbers uh, and gin up the fear. But uh, uh, the best course of action- did you, Suppose I sent, did you get a test? I never got a test. I got 15 of them. 15? Uh, yeah, they, they must love arrived. you. <laughs> they just arrived, and so many of my patients and others did too. Uh, so the, the point is, you're probably off the grid. I, I'm not. But uh, but I think the best course of action is when someone's already had it, you've been through it, that's the most important factor. Uh, if there's nothing else in the clinical history, no more testing, just behave like you've had a common cold, be prudent. Do, do you perceive there's going to be this aggressive propaganda campaign to convince us to get this or even some type of uh, coercion oh, yeah. to get together. Oh, yeah. I, I think what's your prediction on the coercion? What do you think that'll look like? I think the coercion now is, I, I think when the cases are low and it's, it's, it's indistinguishable from the common cold, there will be a messaging that say, listen, do you remember how bad COVID was? People lost their lives. Uh, now everybody has to take one of the new improved vaccines. So I think there's going to be a wave of school mandates, employer mandates, uh, of course, it's going to be varied, uh, but a New York Times piece about two months ago uh, indicated that a third of America is either not taking the vaccine or they're not going to take a booster. The CDC mm -hmm. says overall there's only 18% unvaccinated in the United States. Very few over the age of 65, by the way. Something like 98% of people over 65 taking a vaccine. 
I think America has basically had their fill of this vaccine. And, uh, and, and there's going to be more and more resistance, more and more discord. And I agree with John, this introduction of a new problem like monkeypox and declaring it a worldwide and national emergency. We're at 7,000 cases in the human to human transfers clearly taken on a sexually transmitted disease mode, 98% in gay or bisexual men, 95% transmission is by gay uh, sex or male on male sex, 41% have HIV. Uh, and the immediate response is vaccination. The Bavarian Nordic Genios vaccine, a double-stranded live attenuated vaccine, which shouldn't be used in HIV. And shockingly, in the briefing booklet, over 7,000 patients, it's never prevented a single case of monkeypox or smallpox. It's only been uh, advanced based on antibody rises. There's an 18% rate of inferred cardiac injury with these vaccines. <laughs> And the highest in those who have concurrent HIV or those who previously taken a smallpox vaccine. So I can tell you, monkeypox and mass vaccination is heading for a disaster. The good news on monkeypox is we have a very effective drug called T-pox or ticoviramet. We treat patients at home. Hospitalization is only needed if there's oral or anal pain. No U.S. deaths. This is a complete overreaction. And we just heard now, after SARS-CoV-2 and monkeypox, the... Uh, the, the basically uh, the, the foreshadowing of announcing a climate national emergency. So it's interesting. I didn't realize that they, for the monkeypox vaccine, they were using the justification. The only justification is the raise in antibody levels, which is curiously very similar to the only clinical justification they could offer for approving the jab in the five month old or six months old to five year old. Because they, there was no clinical benefit in the trials, zero, none. Well, now they've suspended clinical trials. So now for SARS-CoV-2 going forward, it's just going to be immunobridging sites, basically showing antibody responses. Uh. And I can tell you as a clinical scientist and a principal investigator, antibodies are an insufficient surrogate. They are not a valid surrogate for protecting somebody against disease. There's got to be loads of study that support that assertion. Why aren't they being used to, to knock a hole, uh, a giant hole in, in their argument to, to, as justification for implementing this? Because the pharmaceutical companies. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it, <laughs> of course. The, yeah, the companies. pharmaceutical companies, the CDC, the NIH, uh, the worldwide governments, they're all aligned. They actually don't want any clinical data. The only thing they want that's clear is they want a needle in every arm every six months for every single human being down to a six month old baby. Their communication has been very clear. There's no exceptions. There is absolutely no exceptions. One can have a fatal contraindication and no one cares. The employer doesn't care. The military doesn't care. The school doesn't care. People should ask the question, why don't people care? Why don't people care that someone has an absolute contraindication to a medicine or a vaccine? I think one more question, John. Is, is there any other country other than the United States that has uh, approved the jab for six months old to five years? I, is there? I, you know, I, there? I, I, I'd have to research that, but I, I have... Um, a general understanding that other countries are actually following suit. Now, oh, they are. Okay. Things that's notable is the lack of consistency. 
the lack of consistency. So the fact that things, it's the same virus everywhere. How come the governments aren't consistent on this from country to country? So John, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was, I was just going to say, I mean, yeah, you know, we should be clear on, on who is, who is driving this, this ship. Um, and this is one of the things that we go into in our book. We call it the biopharmaceutical complex. We're actually, that's an analog to Eisenhower's warning of the undue rise of the military industrial complex. Eisenhower. Or the medical industrial complex. Or the medical industrial complex. And um, this is a, a group of, of international foundations. Um, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation and the Wellcome Trust um, working in close um, orchestration with um, the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. These guys, I mean, this is not a theory. This is well documented. Um, there have been multiple international observers who have drawn the same conclusion. These international foundations have very assiduously taken over and are now driving international health policy. And all you have to do is look at their own documents and you will see that what they completely, I mean, 100% favor as a response to any infection, emerging infectious disease, whether it's real, perceived, exaggerated, made in a lab, it doesn't matter you know, what it actually is and, and what the true threat posed by it is, it's always the same monolithic response, vaccine development and deployment. And the thing that we have marveled at in our research is this, this is completely out in the open. I mean, none of, none of these principal players have, have tried to conceal their agenda. I mean, they openly speak about it. They do pandemic planning simulations that are videoed and released to the world. They have business plans that they circulate on the internet to prospective investors and their vaccine development programs. Um, this is all just plainly out in the open. We know who is driving this. We know they are immensely well capitalized and connected to the media and to the pharmaceutical industry and the pharmaceutical lobbying industry in Washington. They're the ones that are driving this policy. What's your best guess on how to prepare for uh, what's coming up in the fall? I mean, it just, obviously not to get the vaccine or any derivative of it. The, uh, uh, variant, new variant strains that are coming out, which I don't even think have BA5, they're just Omicron. Yeah, I think people need to assess their vulnerabilities. You know, are they in a large employer that's likely to, you know, uh, roll out a new vaccinate everyone, no, um, no exemption uh, type of approach, or are they are you know, entrepreneurial and control their own destiny? I think people should look at their vulnerabilities with respect to their uh, investments, uh, their civil liberties, their, you know, their personal uh, relationships. Uh, uh, you know, things could get pretty rough this fall. There, well, there's no doubt about it. There, well, there it, seems to be no protection of civil liberties at this point in time. Free it would seem, is gone. It would seem we, need to, we, gone. we need to learn from what's just happened. 
So if you're, like you said, if you're evaluating your personal circumstances and you're uh, at risk from your employer imposing a mandate, well, that may be a signal that you need to quit and find a new job or, or do something different. At least you'll be alive. Right. I mean, so many people have lost their lives through coercion to take this jab and they die. And there's not, you know, so what, what does it matter if you get your retirement? What does it matter if you're, you have a paycheck? I mean, the key is to stay alive and, and the doing, in, in taking that jab is going to increase your risk. So it would seem to me that's, that's part of the base strength line strategy. You just got to be in a circumstance where you don't have to submit to it. I completely agree. Uh, you know, the, the, a method of staying healthy is to not take injections of the genetic code for the lethal Wuhan spike protein that was devised in a biosecurity lab in Wuhan, China. Think about this. Keep the foreign genetic material out of your body. It's hard to get say simpler than that, but thank you for reminding us that this is a bioweapon. We should never put it in our body. And if we have already, well, that's uh, sad, but it's not an excuse to continue with the insanity. So we've got to get healthy too. I mean, we're approaching the middle of the summer. We're coming into fall pretty soon, but just getting out in the sunshine is one of the most powerful strategies you can do. And it doesn't cost anything. You have to take your shirt off or at least wear a sports bra if you're a woman and wear shorts, but getting the sun around solar noon, which is about one o'clock, is one of the most powerful things you can do because not only will it improve your vitamin D levels, but it increases subcellular or mitochondrial melatonin. And which is a really potent antioxidant to reduce oxidative stress overall in your body uh, and increases testosterone, nitric oxide, serotonin, you know, all good things that don't, doesn't cost a penny. Uh, and you won't be able to do this in the winter. So now's the time to do it. Good point. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've followed um, your, your um, endeavors and, and encouraging general health, like what you just said. <laughs> And that this is another thing that, um, that, that we, we marveled at was it quickly became apparent already in the spring and early summer of 2020 um, that there were heavily weighted um, factors that, that correlated with severe COVID-19. One of them was high blood sugar, um, mm -hmm. diabetes, uh, untreated high blood sugar, diabetes, and, and morbid obesity. Um, and I mean, these were strong correlations. And so many of the people who I interviewed and, and their family members, you know, were very forthcoming. Um, you know, my son was was overweight. He, he, he didn't manage his blood sugar and so forth. We heard this again and again and again. And yet did, did our public health agencies once in the last two and a half years make any vigorous statements about um, the imperative of the American people to get their, their weight and, and their, their sugar intake under control. I mean, you could say that's out, maybe you could say that's beyond their mandate, um, but I don't, I don't think so. I mean, Dr. McCullough, what do you think about our federal health agencies becoming more active in encouraging just general health? But before you answer that, Peter, I just want to comment on, on one study that was published that you may have saw, saw, seen because it was in your area of expertise. It was in the <laughs> Journal of the American College of Cardiology last month in July, where they posted an update to the metabolic fitness 
or flexibility of the American population. Previously, it was it was 88% were metabolically unfit. Now it's up to over 93%. 14 out of 15 people are in this country are metabolically unfit. That would include things like blood glucose, blood sugar, blood pressure, and weight. So, I mean, there's this 14 out of 15 people could benefit from improving their metabolic health. And it's not a leap of faith. Uh, you know, there's a paper that's been published from Europe. It's a very good paper that... Um, analyzed diet. They actually specifically analyzed diet and categorized diet in a continuum from very healthy to very unhealthy. And those who had the healthiest diets had the lowest frequency of SARS-CoV-2 and the least risk of hospitalization and death. So that's, you know, in a prospective cohort, well done study. So it's all cohesive here. It is about survival of the fittest. If there's anything we've learned with SARS-CoV-2 is there's an opportunity for health redemption. Now's mm -hmm. the time to get on the healthy train. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So, but we still have to deal with the practical realities and I, I can't express enough gratitude for your courage, your bravery, your commitment to step up, to tell the truth in spite of incredible actions directed towards you as a result of that, that speaking out. So it's, it's not many people who will do this and you're one of the rarities and the, and the world should greatly appreciate everything you've done and continue to do. So my deepest gratitude for what you've been doing. Thank you. So um, uh, the book is great. You just, you just heard a tiny fraction of what's in this book. And as I said, John has done a magnificent job of, of, of threading the stories together. So it's, very entertaining. It reads like a novel that contains, but uh, captures your attention. And you just, it's, it's a real page turner. So you want to pick this one up. Uh, the Courage to Face COVID-19. And guys, you're in the process of writing another book. You, I don't know why I didn't get a copy of this before it was published. So I would have had you on to, to, for the book launch, but please get me a copy of, of the draft so that I can digest it, and then we can have another conversation before your next book. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you very All much. Right. All right. Well, you keep up the good work, and uh, it's been an, an honor and a pleasure to connect with you guys today. Thank Likewise, you. Dr. McCullough. Thank you.